This is an ABC podcast. A warning. Today's program combines salad dressing and corduroy. Please, don't try this at home. Indeed, some topic combinations are best left to the experts. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Blueprint for Living, Places, Spaces, Food, Gardens and Design, here to handle your corduroy with care. More on that not very French fabric with Colin Bissett later, salad dressings with Annie Smithers, and a loving tribute to the many women who have made gardens and then vanished from history and common recollection. But first, what difference might Indigenous tradition and imagination make the arcane mysteries of urban planning. Living with Country is a a series of conversations we're having here on Blueprint, bringing together First Nations perspectives on land management, the the idea of country itself. Uh, We've looked at archaeology, artefacts, architectures, intersections with that notion of country. We thought, yes, time to consider urban planning. Uh, Timmer Ball has been been thinking about the complexities of urban planning in this country for a long time with particular focus on how that works uh, on the lands this program is recorded on, on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country. She is a non-fiction writer of Banadong and Noongar heritage whose, whose writing is influenced by the study that she has done uh, in the field of urban planning She's written a lot. Uh, in 2016, she won Westerly Magazine's Patricia Hackett Prize. Her writings appeared all sorts of places, Art Guide Australia, Griffith Review, Mianjin, uh, and Unmagazine. She joins us now. Tim, welcome. Thank you. To begin, tell us a bit about your country, your place. Well, I was born on Wurundjeri, Burrung country, on what is called southeast Melbourne or Nam. And I grew up here my whole life. My ancestral connection is to Noongar Buja. Um, my family, most of my family still live in York, which is a really beautiful town about an hour and a half drive from Perth or Bolu in Wajak language. And yeah, I feel, always feel really greatly privileged and honoured to grow up where I have and just have such huge respect for the sovereignty of First Nation peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nations right across this country beyond sort of the boundaries of Nam or the city or metro regions and, yeah, just feel hugely grateful for the incredible custodianship and care that people have for this place you trained as, a, as an urban planner before you slipped into the, the life of words in, in, in writing. What led to that transition? Oh, look, I mean, sort of lots of things. I think I find the theory and philosophy of urban planning incredibly fascinating. But I think what becomes, I don't know, like a reality quite quickly is that there's probably more scope to sort of write and almost philosophise about it and certainly think about what planning and architecture is in a context of living in sovereign countries across this continent. To do that through all sorts of ways that aren't necessarily translatable to policy, legislation, And the more conventions Mm. of those sorts of careers, I think you can probably, yeah, just sort of say more or critique more through poetry and all sorts of other ways that certainly doesn't always seem to connect. But then the more you think about it, the language and policy of development and architecture and legislation is like so kind of strange and unique and obtuse and weird that it's kind of fun to um, (laughs) play with it or sort of disrupt it or think about other ways you can imagine cities and place and people and communities by challenging it, by kind of playing with 
the language of it, but doing so in a creative or visual or collage text-based way, I guess. I wonder if that's a necessary stage of, of transforming some of those ideas that that sort of academic and, and practical notion of urban planning is a, a, it's a very fixed and very obviously colonial institution in this place. To, to make change to that probably requires a process first of the sort of thing that you're talking about of playing with those ideas, of, of disrupting those ideas, of expressing these things in different ways, and then perhaps that can be turned back into the discipline at some point. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's really exciting. Um, the idea that you play with something that feels very fixed and just so based in law and legislation. But I don't know, some of the language of it can be like quite comical and absurd. And I think sometimes when you look at particularly sort of more statutory planning mechanisms and the way they are literally like quite bizarre maps and ways of regulating where everything in a place should go. And we know that place and people and racial and cultural identity is so complex and beautiful and beyond a system of words in a planning act that almost becomes exciting to just play with it all and try and reinvent it in ways that aren't possible given that the nature of working in such an industry is really linked to development outcomes and capitalism, basically. Mm. I was going to say, what is the the notion of, of identity that the current structures around urban planning tend to implement what what is the what is the world that world of urbanism creates well a lot of the time it's really about practicalities really it's about the kind of rigidity of what type of buildings should go where and of course there's definitely attempts to look at cultural heritage aboriginal heritage tangible intangible and for that to be considered in every way, in every stage of the development and planning of new infrastructures, whether it's residential, civic, transport, open space. That said, I mean, it is very prescriptive and limiting. And I think we all know that cities and, I mean, people and communities nothing's fixed, everything's fluid, things are changing so rapidly. Even, you know, just the acknowledgement that when you call something like an Aboriginal Heritage Act or think about Aboriginal engagement, the word Aboriginal doesn't feel appropriate. You really want to be explicitly engaging with the custodians of the land you're working on, whether it's like Yorta Yorta people or Gunai Kunai or whichever country you're on, and more broadly than that, to then consider other Aboriginal people who might now be living in a suburb you might be planning for. And unfortunately, that complexity or celebration that there's so many different Aboriginal clans, language group, people communities and that we should celebrate that all Aboriginal people are really different and have different ancestral heritages and cultural experiences and the need to be able to self-determine their future. That kind of incredible layers and I think, you know, just celebration of all these languages, it just doesn't fit into a system that wants you to tick boxes which are about, well, how many floors of residential are in this or, you know, those really how many parking opportunities are we meant to have here, setbacks. There's just no way currently to incorporate and celebrate the richness of sovereign people's diversity You've written about this 2019 essay for the Avery Review. You you wrote about this sort of struggle to understand 
well, how, how can this be inclusive if I'm not part of the decision-making process? Uh, these these ideas of, of 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 tokenism and sort of assumptions of the, the assumption that is so often made that there is a um, some sort of amorphous, ubiquitous indigenous identity that can be applied to things in an act of diversity or tokenism, rather than looking at the detail of what that identity might mean in that place. Can you talk a bit about some of the things that you you wrote about there in that essay on that, and particularly that idea of inclusion without representation? Coming back to what I was saying before, I think there's been this huge shift and trend in wanting to look at um, Aboriginal architecture and design in cities, in sort of public art, public infrastructure. On some level, it's really exciting when you see amazing work happening. I think there's like incredible public art by people like Vicky Cousins, Marie Clark in public spaces that um, immediately remind people that they're living on sovereign land and that the place in the city isn't just a colonial construct. It's this beautiful place and continues to be a sovereign place for all the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations and as guests, we can respect and engage with that. At the same time, I think people just very quickly want to do things because it ticks standards. And what I was sort of trying to sort of show when writing about this is that sometimes it's better to kind of walk away and refuse to participate in projects where you kind of know that an Aboriginal identity isn't really something that's going to benefit communities, benefit Mm. anything around equity and equality. It really is about a white research institute or certain people's careers really developing from the fact that they put on an event or they quoted some Aboriginal writers or thinkers to make their strategy look more inclusive. And sometimes it does feel like it's better to disengage with that sort of Mm. rhetoric and way of working. And also I think it puts people who aren't necessarily the best people or in the best position to comment or to, yeah, have a platform to be speaking about these issues simply because everybody does feel this desperation to feel or look inclusive rather than having that really long, difficult, but also hopeful and important opportunity to think about like what actual social justice change equity looks like which is self-determined by custodians of the land you're working on and more broadly other aboriginal people that might be connected to a project what might that look like i wonder oh look i mean sometimes i think it's about just shifting systems and approaches and I think probably like more recently even just thinking about recent books that are coming out like I read Dr Chelsea Watego's Another Day in the Colony which is just a fabulous and just like really compelling way that I think is this going to be an amazing opportunity for Aboriginal people to read it and reflect on some of the, like, difficult situations they've been put into and kind of thinking that, well, stop hoping that might change and kind of leave situations that are difficult, find other ways of working. I mean, in terms of, like, the practicalities of an industry like the built environment profession more widely it's so intrinsically linked to capitalism and property as ownership and the need to make money 
I think to sort of shift the industry, it takes a lot more than to, to sort of think that if we just try to rapidly employ more Aboriginal people, but they're still forced to work and think in the same system that's mm. in place, mm. probably won't do a lot. Perhaps though, some of those structures can be prized apart in small ways. You're involved in a interesting project called Disorganising. Tell us about that and its, its principles. So Disorganising is a really interesting project between liquid architecture, West Space and bus projects, who are all arts organisations now based at Collingwood Yards. It's definitely becoming a really quite dynamic and interesting space. But I think what disorganising does is really sort of think critically about, I guess, in a lot of ways, structure and power in the arts. And I think it really connects into competition and capitalism because it's sort of saying in a weird way, we're quite often almost always competing and what does it mean if we start thinking about collaborating and doing things differently when sort of thinking about all these different ideas through the project I became really interested in the connection sort of between arts and organizing and art spaces and planning and gentrification and was really interested in Collingwood Yard's as almost like a case study and kind of like post-post gentrification almost and what it means to kind of create space in a place that in some ways is beyond saving. Like I feel like it's so gentrified that it's not really even about thinking or connecting to how these sites or places can better support artists. It's almost just kind of like admiring the agility and adaptability of artists to find other ways of working and Mm. other spaces and places to be. And I guess it kind of made me think a lot about shifting between that sort of sense of people being angry about gentrification, but it's an easier conversation to have than the complexity of ongoing Aboriginal injustices it's also really interesting to kind of when you start to acknowledge that you're in a system to critique something that you're also highly complicit within. Hmm. So I think I was kind of looking at sort of planning systems and arts organisations and arts infrastructure and kind of wanting to be critical and trying to sort of disorganise them and mess them up but kept on coming back to this idea of you know, but who sort of is allowed to do this? And it always feels like it's certain people with certain kind of cultural capital or privileges who can sort of have the conversation about gentrification to begin with. And that typical conversation, I think, of places like Collingwood Yard and certainly Footscray too is a sort of sense of 30 years ago, I think, for First Nation artists, it would have been a fight just to get, space in those arts infrastructures and so what does it sort of now mean that we don't have to fight to have space Hmm. we're given space at Collingwood Yards but we also still have this uncomfortable tension or awareness that something's not quite right because we still know that Aboriginal people definitely um, in like Fitzroy Collingwood those areas have been hugely disproportionately pushed out, discriminated against. And, yeah, it's kind of like challenging and uneasy to sort of think about what your role is now and in some ways feel that things are happening because there are certain fights that we're not having to have anymore in the arts because Mm. inclusion is happening but that inclusion in the arts just never seems to spill over to broader social equity. And I think we're all aware on a kind of like property market level, places like Fitzroy and Collingwood are so deeply intrinsically important to 
Koori people's cultural identity as a meeting place and, you know, just like a huge shout out to the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service who are in Nicholson Street, pretty close to Collingwood Yards and just the unbelievably incredible work they're doing at the moment in this difficult time. And, yeah, a lot of that community at the same time is so easily displaced almost Mm -hmm. in parallel to the sort of celebration and inclusion of Aboriginal art. I think there is just a lot of complexity in working out what sort of that means and how I guess when you talk about sort of architecture and design and the desire for black inclusion and kind of like how do you then push that further to have those wider conversations of yeah it's really exciting that you want to engage five amazing Aboriginal artists to do really incredible public art in this new development but how are we going to sort of push that further in a way that could somehow address housing inequality, health inequality, and mm. this kind of like unstoppable housing market. So it's, kind of, it's definitely not easy. Tim, thank you. Yeah, what, what a great introduction to the sort of notion of, of, of the complexities, the and yets that lie beneath every you know easy sort of conclusion. A, a great set of thoughts there to, to conjure with. Thank you. No worries. It's great to chat. Tim Ball, writer uh, of, of Balladong Noongar heritage, practising on Wurundjeri country, an urban planning scholar. And this is Blueprint, Radio National. And one of the things about our moment, it's, it's, it's a time in which history and cultural knowledge is being reappraised in, in so many ways. And much that's been hidden or or ignored is slowly moving into plain sight. For example, our understanding and acknowledgement of women's contribution across all facets of of all our societies, the important roles played by women through history. It's coming into sight, but it's a a field of of revelation still in its infancy, but the work is being done. And here here is a subset. Our our collective knowledge of, of botany and horticulture it relates to so many areas of our lives, food, medicine, enjoyment of nature, our collective well-being. What are the contributions uh, that women have made in these important areas? Judith M. Taylor uh, is a writer and horticultural historian. Her new book is titled Women and Gardens, Obstacles and Opportunities for Women Gardeners Throughout History. It's co-authored uh, with the late feminist historian Susan Groag Bell, uh, and it builds on her unfinished work exploring women's roles as gardeners and founders of horticultural schools. Judith, I'm delighted to say, joins us now. Judith, welcome. Thank you for having me. What, what's the story behind this book? You're, you're a, a, a woman who has written many of them. This particular work, how did this come into being? Unfortunately, I never met Susan, but one of her friends... And her greatest admirers, academic admirers, happens to be a friend of mine. And he came across this very brief outline in her papers. And he thought that with my background, I might be able to put it together and make it into the book that she would have wanted. Tell us about that background. Well, I'm a physician. I'm educated at Oxford, read medicine at Oxford, and then came to this country and practiced medicine neurology in New York. And then in 1994, my husband and I decided to come out and live in San Francisco and have a good time. (laughs) And to do that, we bought a very nice house just outside the city. The house was nice, but the garden was a mess. So we decided to lay out a new garden and we ordered olive trees because this is a Mediterranean climate, just like southwestern Australia around Adelaide, for example. You have a Mediterranean climate with damp winters and long, dry, hot summers. So we put in the olive trees, and they were just so beautiful. You know, it took my breath away, and I rushed off to the library to get a book. There was no book. I even went so far as going to a bookshop. I was going to pay for a book. Still no book. So in that situation, what do you do? You write your own book. (laughs) 
That's really what got me started. And then I learned a very important secret. You cannot write just one book. It's the way you cannot eat just one potato chip. You have to continue. And as you finish one, new thoughts and ideas pop up and you keep going forward. So that's in a nutshell. All right. So let's go to Susan Bell and this, this, this fragment in her papers. Your thoughts on reading those words? She had sketched this outline to send to publishers. Uh, and by the way, that was in 1976. It was all in typewritten form, pre-computer. Hmm. She was going to start historically with early, I say the early Middle Ages. Up until then, there's probably very little of any information. So she was starting with the chatelains of castles, that sort of thing, coming up through the centuries until she got to probably the early 20th century. Uh, she was fascinated by the effect of gardens on paintings and women in, in gardens who painted the question of whether it was Eve or, the, you know, whoever was, uh, or the Virgin Mary, who was the patron saint of women in gardens, that type of work, very meticulous. She did groundbreaking research. She went largely to London and many other places to find early correspondence by women from very, very long time ago. So she did phenomenal work. And the university sent me, Stanford University, sent me this enormous box with all the papers she had left hmm. on this. Going back through all that history to, to that, that extraordinary depth of that, that, that medieval period, is, is there a, 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 a basic argument we can make about women in, in the garden world, about that, that role of women in that sphere? Yes, I'm glad you asked that question, because it's not a straight line. Up until probably the middle of the 18th century, it wasn't outlandish for women of gentle birth to be gardeners. And by the way, I need to make that point right you know, at the outset. Susan was looking at women who did not need to go and get dirty in the garden. Hmm. You must not forget that Millions, maybe a billion women toil growing things all over the world anonymously because otherwise they'll starve to death. That's one group of women we're not talking about. But what Susan was interested in were middle and upper middle class women of so-called gentle birth who had no need to go out and get dirty in the garden, but they loved to do it. And she was trying to sort that out. So you start out in the early Middle Ages, women were gardening in cottage gardens, in villages, even in a castle keep, they had a little garden. Women were the family physicians, they grew the herbs and distilled the medicines and drugs they needed. So for quite a long time, it was just a, a pretty normal activity for women. But then things began to change as more information emerged and more scientific knowledge was widely distributed, men got their act together and began to take over. One of the earliest things they took over was medicine. So quite suddenly, instead of having a lady in, in a cottage growing her digitalis and treating the people with heart failure so effectively with their digitalis tea, the men set up botanical gardens in physic gardens, medical schools, and got everything very formal. And very gradually, the women began to get edged out. So it was sort of like a reverse U-shaped curve, so that their involvement in gardening got less and less until you come up to the, about the second half of the 19th century. I mean, I've jumped over a lot of centuries, but you get the message. It had been normal for them in the earlier days. It didn't become normal for them again until about three, 400 years later. And the interesting thing about those early days, as, as you say so rightly, that so many women, you know, this is this is the great myth we have. We we, we celebrate the men who go out and, and spear the animal, but the, the woman who um, <laughs> creates from nature the basic food of those people is so often ignored. But the, the women of gentle birth that you mentioned, these would have been people who were described who had some presence already in history and in, and, and in the evidence that can be collected? Well, um, if you start right at the top, the number of important queens were very, very profoundly interested in gardens and had gardens created. If you come down from queens to duchesses, 
and countesses, you then get another set, a large rank of people, women of wealth, either personal wealth or their husband's wealth, who created amazing gardens uh, it, all over France. There are these aristocratic gardens where women were the instigators. There was one famous castle in France where a duke had lived with his mistress and she had created a major garden on one side of the castle. When she fell from favor, the new mistress came in and made another garden on the other side. <laughs> I mean, lots of funny things have happened. Can, can you make conclusions about sort of a... Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm using my words with care here because this is something of a minefield, but a, a, a feminine disposition towards the garden and nature, towards uh, growth in that, that garden setting. Well, you are on very delicate territory. I know. <laughs> you get into all sorts of um, issues about women being naturally uh, connected to gardens and nature. Well, you know, yes and no. A woman can produce children and a garden can produce plants. So they're both able to reproduce in that form. But there's nothing specific to women about being gardeners. It's just something they enjoyed doing. It was very relaxing. I'm sure many of them led very stultified lives. Very, everything was prescribed. They were under very rigid control by the time you get to the 19th century. They're mere playthings. The, the women in the class I'm talking about weren't allowed to do anything pretty much except sit and look pretty. So um, going out and getting dirty in the garden was a wonderful relaxation. It really relieved stress. It made beauty. It was a form of art. So yes, women were connected with gardens in that way, but it's nothing preordained or biological. Well, and, and that, that speaks to the role that, that class has played here in, in women's involvement around gardens. That's really the point I'm making. We are looking at a rather specialised class of women and not women as a whole when we come to their relationship with gardens. Once in the mid-19th century, they began ag first agitating for the vote, which I think was hugely important to everything else that followed. Then they began agitating to be able to do things that men did uh, by, by natural right, if you like, one of which was to become, say, a gardener. And that was a very, very radical notion that a a nicely brought up young woman could go and become a professional gardener. But it was what happened. They were emboldened by their agitation for getting the, to get the vote. Mm. They had learned to pull together in groups. That was another thing. Women, of course, were very much more isolated. They were in their homes. They didn't have clubs. They didn't have places where they normally got together. They weren't in, in the coffee shops or whatever it was that men gathered and could you know, produce new thoughts and movements. It was very unusual for the fact that women began to get together, but it was very important. And that led, for example, to the issue of them becoming a professional gardener. There was also the secondary issue, um, which was noticeable in the end of the 19th century and became very tragically serious by the early 20th. There were too many women who had no source of livelihood, who were stuck as sort of unpaid slaves in a family you know, in a family of maybe eight or ten children, you had four or five sisters, not all of them married. They were just stuck at home. They couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything if they were from respectable homes. So there was this really gigantic, radical change of ideas and, and movement of thought at that time. And then along comes the First World War and kills off however many you know, millions of men. Women then came into their own. For example, at Kew Gardens in London, you know, the most beautiful, famous gardens in, in London. Well, for the first time in living history, Kew Gardens employed women gardeners. The frontispiece of my book is a photograph of them in 1915. Another aspect of this, which may sound trivial, mm. that women's clothing was so unsuited yes. to all this kind of activity. Well, the chap who took them on decided that they should be dressed more or less like men in what were called knickerbockers, you know, those sort of halfway trousers then with short, long socks and heavy shoes under them. This sort of thing that was made, made a huge change. Certain rather forward-thinking women, aristocratic, wealthy women, who looked around them and saw a lot of these people who had no work, no means of livelihood, and were just stuck, got the idea 
that they should be educated and become professional gardeners by teaching them in schools. And there's a whole chapter in the book, which I thought was particularly interesting, on the history of these schools, which were a very boutique solution to a gigantic problem. But two or three aristocratic ladies with a lot of money founded schools, and in other situations, women got together with each other and created schools in old farms, for example. And it wasn't unique to London or England. It was done in the United States. There were some in Australia. It was done in certain countries in Europe. Hmm. It was quite a movement in Germany. So the idea that you could learn a trade like gardening and go out and make a living was a huge step forward for women in those days. And that, that, that sort of social isolated period in, in women's history that you describe, the possibility of the garden as this expandable, this, this, this fascinating universe, which is accessible when so much of the world is not accessible, makes it such an attractive place for women in that, that position of isolation. Correct. Now, the, the one defining feature of a garden is that it's enclosed. You can have million different kinds of garden, but, you know, 99.9% of them are enclosed. So it meant a woman could safely go out into the garden, but still be um, at home. So she was very safe doing that. She could let her children play out there. They could live in nice weather. They could live out in their garden. Then if they opened the gate, they could go out into the world. The, the great English explorer, Gertrude Bell, I don't know if you knew her, but Indeed, she... Yes. Exactly. She writes very interestingly in a letter about going outside the garden gate. She, she encapsulated that concept. And women scholars today, you know, examine these things, the, the in and the out aspect of the garden gate. It's a very significant uh, point. Judith, thank you. Look, if these tales have, have tickled your fancy, listener, the book uh, which we discuss is titled Women and Gardens, Obstacles and Opportunity for Women Gardeners Throughout History. Judith M. Taylor is its co-author. Judith, thank you so very much. I enjoyed being here. Sorry I talked your ear off, but thank you very much. <laughs> I'm delighted. You may, you may chew my ear and talk my ear at any, any point. Uh, Judith Taylor, writer, horticultural historian, and her co-author in this book, uh, the late feminist historian Susan Groag-Bell. And this is Blueprint, Radio National. Kitchen Rudimental, a series in which chef and author Annie Smithers investigates the very basics of kitchen craft. Annie Smithers, hello. Hello. Now, last time we talked salads and your wonderful Leonese, uh, the Annie Leonese recipe is resting on the blueprint page at the Radio National website. This time we're going to talk dressings. Yes. Can you have a salad without a dressing? Of course. Okay. Just a naked salad. You can just have a naked salad. Again, that, that gardening cooking thing, it's, it's very delicious to actually just break off some lettuce leaves and munch on them. I don't know whether you'd call it a salad. You'd call it a rabbit eating. Oh, a rabbit. <laughs> don't talk to me about rabbits. I think we've got some in the vegetable garden for the first time in five years. I don't want to know about rabbits. We cross now to Farmer McGregor. Yes. <laughs> but yes, I think that salads are improved by dressings or they add a, another element to the flavour profile. Let's start from the start then, uh, which I guess is a vinaigrette. Well, our friend Mrs Alexander dresses her salad in olive oil, that, you know, seasoning in olive oil, no acid. Interesting. Yeah, and a lot of people do like to just dress with oil. I like to use um, vinegar. I like the sharpness of vinegar. Even on the most basic level, it immediately comes down to personal preferences and personal taste. Well, when you say vinegar, <laughs> that, that's a pretty wide open field. And then, yeah. Well, I make a very standard vinaigrette in my life, and that is one part sherry vinegar, because I love the flavour of sherry vinegar, one part extra virgin olive oil, and two parts grapeseed oil. So I use a fairly neutral 
oil as the carrier, the vinegar and the element of olive oil for depth but not overwhelming flavour. Hmm, nice. Yeah, that's interesting, the grapeseed oil. Mm. So I, I cook a lot with grapeseed oil because it's a lightish oil and it doesn't interfere with the other flavours. But it dilutes the intensity of, you know, particularly extra virgin olive oils can come across as being quite rich and they can actually hide some of the other flavours. And because I love my lettuces to shine through, if I'm just dressing a salad with a, a lettuce salad with a vinaigrette, I like to sort of have the presence of the olive oil but dilute it a little bit. So, yeah, so dressing is a, is a, is a complementary flavour profile to the lettuce and so forth that you're using. So what are we talking about with the vinaigrette, that sharpness, that's set against what? Well, it's set against the oiliness of the oil, but it's also against the crispness and giving, picking up the flavours of the, of the lettuces. But also I like to put a lot of snipped herbs in my salads. So a bit of chive, a bit of parsley, a bit of tarragon, lovely summer herbs to sort of give those little little flavour bursts of um, the oniony of chives and the, and the anise from the tarragon and parsley, just because parsley fixes everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, so, but then with that basic vinaigrette, I will, and we spoke last, last time about the French composed salad. So when... If I was making a you know a classic salad that has you know leaves and little croots with a beautiful goat's cheese on them warm through roasted walnuts, is I would take that 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 one part of extra virgin olive oil out of that dressing and I would replace it with walnut oil. So that walnut oil then complements the flavour of the roasted walnuts and sort of carries that flavour through the salad in a different way. In the same way that if I had a beautiful little roasted uh, root vegetable salad that had some chopped roasted hazelnuts, uh, I might put a bit of honey in the vegetables while they're cooking, but I would replace the extra virgin olive oil with hazelnut oil in that dressing. So that you then start to have that sense of the different dressings to bring out the flavours of things. We were discussing a salad at work recently that was raw beetroot and walnuts and raspberries and that was a you know Ronnie had it for dinner and she said it was an amazing combination and again when I've got raspberries that are sort of a bit past it is I will just put them in white vinegar and let them steep in that and create my own raspberry vinegar which then I would possibly use in a salad that features those sort of flavors so the dressings just go on and on because then we yeah that's a vinaigrette style dressing mayonnaise has gone out of fashion a little bit I think it has something to do with some fairly high profile food poisoning problems oh <laughs> but also things come in fits and starts in trends and mayonnaise is not in vogue really at the moment so if you want that sort of you know more emulsified type of dressing is you can take a, a straight vinaigrette and you can whip it through yogurt or cream or sour cream and you get a lovely creamy textured dressing that has a different sort of fat feel to it because it has the the addition of dairy in it and then, you know, plus the acid from the vinegar, you know, season it with salt to make sure that you keep those flavours coming out beautifully. And that's another beautiful thing. You can make a vinaigrette that's emulsified with Dijon mustard. I've been doing for many years, and I think the recipe originated with Ian Hewitson way back in 1989 at Elfington House Wine Bar. Gosh. Remember the Lemon Tree Hotel? I do. Oh, now, 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 now a childcare centre. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we did a beautiful warm salad and it was lettuce, fresh tomato, and it had a little fry up of potatoes, bacon and pork and thyme sausages. And the sausages were a little, we made them without skins and just roast them off, slice them up, toss them with the potatoes and the, the bacon. And then it had the mustard vinaigrette on it. It's been an enduring thing that I've made for years and years and years because those flavors really work together mm. and those textures and it all, all comes together. So the, the notion of dressings is it sometimes also 
creates the salad. If you had some, say, depuy lentils, you cook them up and you boil them up and you started off with some, I don't know, some yeah, little brunoise of uh, onion, carrot, celery, sweated all of that off, put your lentils in, put a couple of cloves. Can I stop you there on, on brunoise? Brunoise is the little um, millimetre by, well, it's a bit bigger than that. Yeah, the tiny little cubes. It's part of the, the cuttings that you learn as an apprentice. Goes with Julienne and Chiffonard. So the tiny little cubes. Um, so you sweat those off. You put in your lentils, a couple of cloves of garlic, a bit of herbs, veggie stock or stock or water or whatever. Um, you have your lentils. You might make them specifically for a little pulse salad or you might have had them as a hot thing and you have some left over. And bringing them back to room temperature or just warming them slightly and then adding a vinaigrette to them and you know, perhaps some fresh cut herbs or something that immediately sort of turns them into salad lentils so it's the dressing has this huge part in making it a salad to go back to the question that you asked me last time is what is a salad so it's really hard for me to define what is the dressing and what is what what is a salad and does the salad have to have a dressing but i think in 2022 those rules are they're very flexible. We're not in a Scoffia's time here where everything has a name and everything mm. has a purpose. Balsamic vinegar, you've not mentioned. Balsamic vinegar, vincotto, all the Italian, the Italian range are delicious and beautiful, beautiful dressings. And I think that, but the thing about a good vinaigrette is that it also relies on the fact that your oil is in pristine condition mm. because there is nothing more vile than a vinaigrette made with rancid oil. So don't use the one that you've done the chips in. No, don't do that. <laughs> but even oil that's been hanging around in the cupboard for too long can go rancid. So, yeah, for all my specialty oils, I leave them in the fridge so that they don't go off, they don't go rancid. Yeah, I was going to say there's no sort of generalised rule that you know dressings as a family of things have these characteristics because that's just not true it's not true and if you look at how home cooking has changed in our lifetimes you would not have grown up with balsamic vinegar you would have grown up with probably cornwall's white vinegar precisely well or even apple cider vinegar was more you know and now that's yeah, that's a very popular vinegar because it's got a lot of health properties to it. So it is, so what we learned as children and what we carry through in our sort of Australian cultural bone of salad dressings has changed so dramatically with this explosion of embracing multicultural pantry items that allows us to cook from any region of the world and step away from that narrow world that we grew up in and embrace probably the pantries of neighbours and other people in our in our suburb that we didn't know existed that were having things sent from other parts of the world and dressing i mean it's such a a wonderful area of experimentation really i mean it's there's there's no great harm done have a have a go at things no because let's face it once it's dressed particularly if it's a soft green like a lettuce green is well you can't keep it so if you didn't like it you just try harder tomorrow (laughs) thank you i i I feel well dressed well i'm glad you feel well dressed it's sort of it's a it's a very big subject to just gloss over but um i think that uh, it is as you say a, an area of experimentation and personal taste and that um just make sure that your ingredients are nice and fresh and uh, robust and just you know splish splosh splash in a different sort of way any thank you pleasure jonathan I hear a rustling of rich fabric. Colin Bissett. The idea of wearing corduroy as a symbol of rebellion seems today somewhat perplexing. But that's precisely how it was perceived when it gained widespread popularity in the late 1950s. 
It wasn't dangerous or sexy like James Dean in a pair of jeans, but was aimed more at intellectuals who wanted to fight the conformity of conservative clothing and, by extension, conservative thinking. Wearing it was shorthand for individual expression, making it popular with literary and media types. By the 1970s, it was almost a cliché, evoking the university professor coaxing Jungian thoughts from his students. Corduroy emerged in the 19th century as a variation of fustian fabric, a densely woven cloth that had a short nap, giving rise to moleskin and velvet, as well as corduroy. The name corduroy hints at French origins, corde du roi, or king's rope, but there's no evidence for that. There has been, however, a liking in France for fringed fabrics and velvet since the 15th century. But it was in Manchester, the cotton manufacturing capital of industrial Britain, that corduroy, as we know it, first appeared. With its ridges of soft, tufted cotton woven onto a cheaper base cloth, it combined softness and warmth with strength, making it comfortable to wear and popular with farmers and factory workers alike. It even had a kind of utilitarian chic when used by the Women's Land Army in the First World War, which saw women working in agriculture across Britain, filling the gap left by farmhands enlisted to fight abroad. The organisation was revived in the Second World War and corduroy was used for the land girls' informal uniform of practical breeches and dungarees. This at least hints to its future as something with an edge of rebellion to it. After all, women working during wartime was a catalyst for female emancipation. By the 1950s, using corduroy reflected a desire for leisure clothes different from those worn at work. With its rising popularity came a number of variants, from the fine needle cord, that was almost as dense as velvet, to the thick elephant or jumbo cord of the 1970s, its wide ridges fluffed up by steam to add to the softness. The fabric became popular in furnishing too, although for upholstery rather than curtaining, and seemed tailor-made for the new nebulous style of chairs and sofas that used foam rather than conventional timber framing. It even found its way into haute couture, with Dior designing a silk-blend corduroy coat in the 1960s, and funky London department store Bieber selling trouser suits in bright orange or mustard corduroy. Corduroy was useful and fun, and yet it retains an agricultural edge, a sturdy alternative to tweed, and is still worn by a certain type of country gentleman who thinks raspberry red and bright yellow is an excellent colour for trousers. It continues to fall in and out of fashion, but is today, rather sadly, about as rebellious as a teddy bear. Colin, thank you. Uh, Colin's icons, corduroy included, uh, gathered for you on the ABC Listen app or, of course, on the, the Blueprint page at the Radio National website. You'll find any Smithers recipes there, all the things we do. That's it for this week's edition. Uh, I'm Jonathan Green. We'll talk, same time, next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.